So it says, he writes, um, the Christian cannot simply take for granted the privilege of living among other Christians. Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. In the end, all his disciples abandoned him. On the cross, he was all alone, surrounded by criminals and the jeering crowds. He had come for the express purpose of bringing peace to the enemies of God. So Christians, too, belong not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the midst of enemies. There they find their mission, their work. So that's, uh, that's from that. If you, if you want to know more, don't take my word for it. Pick it up from the library. Okay, let's go to Philippians 2 now. We're looking at verses 12 through 18. And keeping in mind what it means to be a Christian living in a world which is hostile to us. So I'm going to go ahead and read. Wow, there it is. Thank you. I'm going to go ahead and read this. I'm going to read the first two verses. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but also much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, we talked about last week that this is a letter Paul is writing uh, to the Philippian church from prison. Uh, he's in the midst of a prison situation. He's writing this letter of encouragement to the Philippians. And so he says here, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed me, uh, not only in my presence, but how much more in my absence, now that I'm in prison, now that I'm away from you. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that's kind of an odd thing to say, right? I mean, we sort of look at that, and, and as Protestants, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What exactly does that mean? I thought that our salvation was based on grace, not on works. So we're going to talk about that a little bit right now. We're going we're gonna to talk about that. What does that mean, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? Well, um, the verb there, it says, continue to work out. That verb, work out, is actually in um, what's called a middle tense. And a middle tense, a first tense is to say, I am doing this myself, right? A third tense is to say, this is being done to me, right? So I have preached, or I was preached at, okay? Now there's a middle tense, which basically is core of like, I'm involved in the process of. I'm involved in the process of working out. Sylvie, would you mind taking that into the back? Sorry, sweetie. <laughs> Okay, good. Well, if it wasn't Jesus, though, I'm... Oh, my goodness. Exit in disguise. That's right. God bless her. In middle tense, it sort of means I'm involved in. So Paul's saying, be involved in working out your salvation. It's not something that you entirely do on your own. You're involved in the process. Salvation is not something that we simply raise our hand and say a quick prayer, pay a one-time fee, and then that's over and it's done with. And for the rest of our lives, we can do whatever we want. We're involved in the process of working out our salvation. Right? But lest we get excited about our involvement in working out our salvation, Paul goes on, verse 13, For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Work out your salvation. Be involved in working out your own salvation because it is God who works in you to will and act according to his purpose. We recently put together um, a changing table downstairs. So we have a changing table in the nursery now. Um, we, we are going to move one upstairs. We have one upstairs, 
then we're going to have one downstairs for parents who need to change their kids. And so we had this uh, changing table we bought online, right? It comes in a big box. And three groups of people made attempts to put together this changing table over the course of about two weeks. Uh, one group would work on it for a while, give up. Another group would come in and say, oh, there's a changing table here. Let's put this together. They'd work on it for a few hours, give up. And then finally it was Casey Quinn, who I don't know if he's here today, but Casey Quinn, God bless him, finished the job. And um, we were talking, Casey and I were talking, like, why did it take so long? And we realized the reason why it took so long is because most of the people who put it together were guys, and most of the guys refused to look at the directions. <laughs> There's something manly about, oh, I can put together this changing table without even having to look at the directions. And... Um, Folks, how many of you guys know sometimes it's important to look at the directions? Sometimes it's important to start with the directions. You have a role to play in your own salvation. But if you don't look at the directions, if you're not interested in taking the directions out here and again and getting back in line, it's it's not going to work out well for you. You need to bring the directions on board. It is God who wills and works within you according to his good purpose. We have a role to play, but we are not the authors of our own salvation, right? We are working out our faith with Jesus, with Jesus together. Let's move on. Verse 14. Go ahead and put 14 to 16 up there, if you can. That's all right. I'll just start reading it. Do everything without complaining or arguing, says Paul, so that you may be blameless and pure. There you are. Children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. And we'll stop right there. I find it interesting here that Paul singles out complaining and arguing. You know, there's so many things he could have said. Do everything without all of this. But do everything without complaining or arguing. And as I was looking at this list last week, the only other place where Paul issues a similar command to this, where he says do everything without complaining and arguing, is in 1 Timothy And in 1 Timothy, Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up their hands without argument or anger. I I will confess something to you. When I was younger, this is not a big confession, but when I was younger, I used to love going into online chat rooms and arguing with people about Christianity. You remember in like in the 90s when chat rooms were still somewhat uh, cool? Did anybody else go in the chat rooms? Thank you, thank you. Three or four of us have to make that confession. Uh, I went into online chat rooms, and you can go to the Christian chat rooms there, and you get on there, and it's like, you know, 12 people. Six of them are Christians. Six of them are hardcore atheists from, you know, somewhere in Dakotas or something like that. And they want to argue, and you could spend hours going back and forth with these people. And I loved doing that. But after I was done arguing, at the end of the night, there was always like this empty kind of feeling that I get. Do you ever feel that way? You have a big argument, big blowout session with somebody. You feel like you're arguing for the right. And then afterwards you walk away and you feel like, ah, there's just, that was not helpful. That was not, that didn't help anybody. It didn't help me. It didn't help them. There's some kind of emptiness that comes along with that. And I think that Paul is really getting at something here where he says, do everything without complaining or arguing. Because the reality is that when I start going and arguing with other people, I leave Jesus behind. I'm no longer walking with Jesus. I, I'm blazing my own path. I'm, I'm out there to prove a point, right? I'm out there to be right. I'm out there to be the smartest guy in the room. And Jesus is sort of 
over there, and I've left him for a while. What has he done with me? <laughs> He's probably like me with my children, wondering when I'm going to come back. <laughs> I'm so interested in being right that I'm willing to sacrifice a relationship, even an online relationship, on the altar of me being right. How many times do we do that with our own relationships? We're so interested in being right. We're so interested in claiming the high ground that we're willing to take a relationship with somebody and sacrifice it on the altar of our own pride, on the altar of our own need to feel um, correct. Where there is complaining and arguing, our worship is hindered, our prayers are hindered, because we're off doing our own thing. We're not interested in walking with Jesus. Jesus is back there, and we're over here. And I want to encourage you, um, and this is something that, that has come up several times in the past weeks in our congregation, so I just want to acknowledge that the Spirit's doing. But I want to encourage you, if there's something that you have against a brother and sister in this room or in your life, I encourage you to go and meet that person, talk with them, resolve that issue. And, and do it in a sense of not wanting to produce the rightness, not wanting to claim the high ground. Um, that's not the point. The point is we're out of fellowship with one another. We're out of relationship with Jesus. We're out of relationship with one another. And our worship and our prayers are hindered when we are not united as a body. So I encourage you, do everything without arguing and complaining. And if there's somebody that you have an offense towards or that has an offense towards you, I encourage you, uh, resolve that. Sometimes that's more difficult than others, but, but that's something I feel like is important to say. Don't allow arguing and complaining to disrupt your life of faith. Don't allow that to get in there and start producing division. Um, frankly, the more that I thought about it this week, the more that I realized that when I complain and when I argue with people, it's a reflection of an immature faith on my part. You know, When I'm more interested in proving to them that I'm right, than I am in loving them. That's an issue with me. Um, Jesus is certainly not afraid to make his case known to the Pharisees, but he doesn't sit there and argue with them. He just says, this is what, this is what the truth is. Take it if, you, if you'd like. Come and follow me. If not, there you go. So it's not, it's not that we are hiding our true feelings, but we have to be mature enough to say, I value you and your relationship with me more and I value being right in this situation. All right. In the presence of Jesus, what makes Christianity so appealing is the powerful and personal presence of our Savior. It's the presence of Jesus that makes Christianity so appealing. It's not your arguments. It's not your arm twisting. It's not my arguments, right? I believe Jesus said, when your most persuasive argument is lifted up before men, then I will draw all people to myself. Is that what he said? No, he said, when I am lifted up, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, all peoples, when Jesus is lifted up. And that's what we need to do. We need to keep the first thing the first thing. Jesus is the light of the world, and we need to allow him to shine through us. So as we walk our life of faith, as we're walking around and we're doing this, as we're doing community together, we need to be able to minister to the people around us. We need to be able to be Jesus to the people around us. The Savior of the world is longing to minister through you to your brothers and sisters around you, and that will not happen if we have unresolved or 
uh, deep chasms of relationship built up between one another. So we don't argue, we don't complain because we're interested in the light of Jesus shining forth to our world and our communities. Verse 16, let's keep on going, 16b. In order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I do not run or labor for nothing. And go to 18 here. Where Paul says um, in verse 17, go. Almost. But even if I am being poured out, there we go. No, it's all right. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And then verse 18. So you, too, should be glad and rejoice with me. What does it mean for, for Paul to write these things? Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. Here's a man who has truly poured out his life for the gospel. You know, um, he becomes an apostle. He's a very popular guy uh, within the Jewish community. He's given a lot of responsibility um, he's tasked even with rounding up Christians to be persecuted. And uh, so he's a prominent guy. He's a Pharisee. And then one day he meets Jesus. And it completely transforms his life. He begins serving the church. He begins planting churches and ministering. And all of a sudden, all of his friends, I'm sure, of his previous life, have wanted nothing to do with him. He gets shipwrecked several times. He's beaten and tortured for the gospel. Even Christians, by the way, Not all Christians liked Paul. Did you know that? In some of his letters, he's saying things like, man, every time I come to you guys, I feel like I'm restarting because I come and you don't want to hear anything that I say. Even Christians didn't want to talk to Paul. As a reward for all of his efforts, he's been beaten and left for dead. He's been arrested on false charges. He's been starved. He's been tortured. And now he's sitting in prison. And in verse 17 here, he writes, but even if... I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. And I can't believe that Paul was simply trying to put a happy face on a bad situation. Like, I can't believe that that he's just so delusional that he's wanting to see the world through rose-colored glasses. I don't think he's faking this. I don't think he's trying to fake it until he makes, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad and I rejoice. I've just got to say that again and again and again. I'm glad and I rejoice. I'm glad and I rejoice. I certainly don't, uh, don't feel like it, but I, I'm repeating it to convince myself. I think that Paul was walking a different walk. I think that Paul was walking a walk of faith with Jesus. And I think that his walk with Jesus has led him to a place where he realizes that no matter what happens, no matter what sort of circumstances he comes to, prison or not prison, beaten or healthy, hungry or filled, his walk with Jesus is that which sustains him. His presence with the Savior, that's what matters. And because he has Jesus, he can say, I'm glad and I rejoice with all of you. That's something I need to do in my own life. How much am I looking to the circumstances of my life to define my happiness for me? How much am I looking to the things that are going on around me and being weighed down by those things when the presence of my Savior is right there with me? Everything that I need, everything that I want, all happiness and fullness and joy is right there with me. Yet I refuse to acknowledge that 
And in consequence, I look at the waves of my life and I get brought down by those things. Am I walking a path with Jesus like Paul was walking? Nowadays, we hear a lot about how the church of the United States is coming under persecution. And even in our own community, I've spoken with pastors and with Christians, and many, and there's a, there's a feeling of, of uh, you know, that we're being beset upon by the world. And we're concerned. I hear people's concerns about the future of our faith, the future of the church. Uh, will the church endure these times? What will happen to the gospel? And, um, and I, it's interesting because you can see this being played out even among uh, politicians, you know. Uh, I, I always think about politicians in this way. They always want something from you. Always want your, they always want your vote, you know. And so a politician will come up and say, you know, if we don't stand for this or that, the whole thing's going to collapse, you know. The whole, it's all going down the tubes. Uh, some people tell us that if we don't, if we're not teaching uh, liberal values of freedom and freedom of expression in our, in our schools, then the whole project of America is going to fail and we're going to perpetuate systems of injustice. Other people say if we don't teach strong Christian moral values in our schools, if we're not doing that, then the whole moral fiber of our nation will come undone. And I want to tell you something. Can I just admit something to you? The world has already descended into chaos, ladies and gentlemen. We are not waiting for our society to come unraveled. All right. The world descended into chaos back in the Garden of Eden when we decided to reject God the first time. And since that time, we have never experienced a system of government or society or a neighborhood or a church which has been able to perpetuate perfect peace and love and joy and happiness. It has all been a failed project, people. And if in this season... We are going to put our faith or our trust in our ability to make it through. Let me tell you something. It will already have failed. We need to trust in someone else to sustain the church, to sustain the gospel. Our faith is built on nothing less but Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Amen? Amen. It's his righteousness that sustains us. Our society is one day going to be destroyed. I hate to be the one to tell you this, but there was a time when our society did not exist, and there will come a time again in the future when it will not. And at that point, the power of the gospel will not reduce by one iota. It never will, because it never has. My faith is not dependent on the status of the White House. My faith is not dependent on the status of what they're teaching at Ocean Lake Elementary School. My faith is not dependent on any of those things. And if our faith is, we need to reevaluate our faith. Open up your Bibles. Uh, we're going to go really quick to Matthew's 8. Matthew 8. If you've got your Bible, crack it open. Matthew 8. This is important. This was hitting me this week, and as I was thinking about Paul, um, this passage came to mind. And we're just going to stay there for a little bit. Matthew 8, verses, uh, starting in verse 23, it says this. It says, Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and they go out on the water. And without warning, it says, a furious storm came up over the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat, and Jesus was asleep. He was sleeping. He was sleeping. And the disciples went and woke him, saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. 
What are you, crazy? At least help, right? Uh, Jesus, he's a carpenter. You know, he, he probably doesn't have that much uh, you know, time working on boats, as, as much time uh, certainly as Peter or James and John. But come on, man, you can bail, you know. You can do something. Why are you sleeping? We're going to die. Come on, Jesus. Lord, look at our world. Look at the church, God. Look at this next generation. Oh, my goodness. We're going to die. The gospel's going to fail. What's going to happen to their church? Well, what's going to happen, God? And you're asleep? And Jesus replies to them, You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Why are you so afraid? And then he got up, and in a word, he rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm, completely calm. Brothers and sisters, we need to have a faith that is built on Jesus, on his ability, and on his power, and on the the ability of God to see us through. I'm not basing it on our ability, all right? So I, all the time, I think, you know, and other pastors are also, and I, and I appreciate the difficulties that we have as a church and as a church in our society and onward and onward. I appreciate all those things. Um, but when people say to me things like, oh, you know, the church is in decline, or look at Europe, the church is in decline, and, and all this stuff. And I just say, you know, I'm not so interested in if the church is in decline. Now, if Jesus was in decline, I would be very concerned about that. <laughs> um, If Jesus was in decline, I'd be quite worried. But Jesus is not in decline. Right? What does that say? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Amen. He's not in decline, and he will always have those who follow after his name. And we may go through dark times, but the the light of Jesus does not diminish. The power of the gospel does not diminish. There is nothing that could diminish it. Do I vote? Yes. Do I advocate for people? Yes, absolutely. Do I teach my children Christian moral values? Yes, I certainly do. But I'm walking a path with Jesus. And should the world around me descend into chaos, should the United States be torn apart by civil war, or, God forbid, be invaded by the Europeans, or by the Russians, depending on who you ask, or China, be be invaded by somebody, The power of the gospel and my faith will not diminish in one bit because my faith is built on Jesus. Amen. Is there anybody else here who says my faith is built on Jesus? Thank you, Lord. Yeah, amen. 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 I want to give you a a word of encouragement here as we kind of start to uh, think about wrapping up, which, by the way, is pastor talk for we're halfway through. Um, This is, uh, I wanted to read a small portion of uh, a letter that was written by a guy named Origen. How many of you guys know who Origen is? Raise your hand loud and proud. Yes, two. Oh, praise God, three. Wow. I got my church historians in, in, uh, in church today. Origen is a second century uh, church leader, pastor, uh, theologian, writer, talker. Uh, and he's dealing at a time when the Romans begin to produce heavy persecution on the church. The Romans begin to uh, go after the leaders of the churches, and they're killing pastors. And the thought is, if we kill all the pastors, there won't be anybody to lead the church. So they start systematically 
uh, starting with bishops who were kind of the pastors of pastors, killed them off, and then they started hunting down pastors. And Origen's writing um, a letter at this time, and it's called An Exhortation to Martyrdom. Ooh, that sounds, an exhortation to martyrdom uh, in layman's terms. An encouragement to die for Jesus. An encouragement to die for Jesus. And this is what he writes. He says, long ago, we heard Jesus' words. And it is now in the distant past that we were made disciples of the gospel. And we all built for ourselves a house. Where we have built, whether we have dug deep and founded it on the rock or on the sand without any foundation, the present struggle will show us. For a storm is imminent, bringing rain and rivers and winds, or as Luke, the gospel writer, says, flood water. And when these break upon the house, either they will not be able to shake it, and the house will not fall for the reason that it is built upon the rock on Christ, or they will show up the weakness of this building, and it will fall under the blows of a tempest. Is Christ the cornerstone for your faith? Is Christ the cornerstone for your church? Is Christ the cornerstone for your gospel? The present struggle will demonstrate whether it is or not. If the winds come and the flood waters rise and your house is able to sustain because it is built on something more solid than the sand, then you will know. And if this house falls, and if the American church falls at this time, God bless them, I say the sooner the better. Because we cannot afford to be built on sand. We cannot afford to be built on a sense of social accomplishment. We cannot afford to be built on a sense of social acceptance. We cannot afford to be built on a sense of pride in the fact that we helped found this nation. We cannot be built uh, in the sense of saying, look at how much we have contributed. Those are not sure enough foundations for this gospel. Those are not sure enough foundations for our faith. And if, God forbid, our church or this faith or this, uh, the, the Christianity, the way that Christianity has expressed itself in our nation has built in that way, then Lord, bring it down. Because I'm not interested in a faith that is built on those things. I'm interested in a faith built on Jesus, on Christ alone. That is who I'm interested in. And that will transcend and supersede time and culture and space and place. Right? Christ alone has to be our cornerstone. We are walking a path with Jesus. So even if we're being poured out like a drink offering, we are glad and we rejoice because we're pursuing Jesus. And I want to say something about that just as an aside. There are those of us among us maybe here today who have sacrificed and lost according to this gospel. According to the gospel of Christ, you've lost relationships, or you've lost power, or you've lost a reputation, or you've lost a position. And I want to tell you something. God honors your sacrifices. He honors your sacrifices. He holds those things in his hands. Right? Peter comes to Jesus one day and he says, Lord, we've left everything. We've left family. We've left our jobs. I mean, can you imagine these disciples? Gone are their childhood ambitions of raising a family uh, in peace and quiet. Gone are their, uh, their ambitions of following their fathers into their trade. They've left everything behind for Jesus. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, there is no one who has lost anything 
in the kingdom of God that will not one day reap a benefit hundredfold on those things. God honors your sacrifices. He honors the things that you've lost. I understand that in my own life. I know I've lost things according to this gospel, and I trust that God holds those sacrifices in his hands. We're on a journey with Jesus. One day we're going to walk alongside him in heaven. One day we're going to join him, not just in a spiritual journey, but in a real physical journey as well. We're going to be with him. And brothers and sisters, it's not going to be long. Soon and very soon, says the song, right? Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. And I hope you'll be there with me. I hope that you'll be there with me. I can't wait. I can't wait for that day when the Son of Man turns to the chaos of our world and says, peace, be still. And it becomes calm. Calm. I long for that day. And it won't come with a piece of legislation. And it won't come with an iPhone upgrade. And it won't come with a new house. It won't come with a paycheck. It won't come with a better education system. It won't come with any of those things. It's going to come like everything that is good in life. It's going to come with the presence of somebody that you love. It's going to come with a sweet, sweet presence of somebody. And when he calls your name, and you hear him say your name, you'll know his voice, and it'll be like a reunion of old friends. You may not even recognize him when you see him. Isn't that amazing? Mary Magdalene is in the garden, right? She's been with Jesus for years. She's been close to him. And yet when she sees him, she didn't quite recognize him. But when he, when he said her name, when he said, Mary, Mary, when he says your name, you'll hear his voice and you'll recognize. And all of a sudden, all of the reunions that you wish you could have, all of the peace that you wish you could have here is going to find fulfillment in his presence. It's going to be like holding your baby for the first time. It's going to be like holding your mother or your father. It's going to be like hugging your grandparents after not seeing them for a long time. It's going to be all of that and more. All of the angst that we have, all of the unmet expectations, all of the things that we wish we would have done, all the ways that we wish the world would have been better are going to melt away in his presence. And we'll just be there with somebody, with the powerful, sweet presence of our Savior. Because we're walking a path with Jesus. And I hope that you get to be there too. I want you to be there too. I want to invite uh, the prayer team, if we have our prayer team to come on up. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in prayer. I think that the, the proper way to end is to say that if there are those of us today who say, I am not walking with Jesus. Or at least there's areas of my life in which I am not walking with Jesus. I want to encourage you. Today is your day. It is not too late. It is not too late to begin a walk with Jesus. And there's other of us who say, you know, I've walked with Jesus my whole life, but there's still areas of my life or times in my life when I step off that path and I say, Jesus not interested in being around you right now, and I start walking my own path. And I want to encourage you today. Jesus is waiting, waiting for you to come back and say, come walk with me again. 
There is nothing, nothing standing between you and him in terms of intimacy. Right? There is no sin. There is no circumstance. There is no abuse. There is no hardship that, would, that Jesus would say, I want you to figure that out. Go away. Figure that out first before you can come and be with me. No, you come to Jesus now. Bring your pain Bring your sin, bring your sorrow, bring your hunger, bring everything that you need from him and come to his presence and say, Lord, I want to walk with you. I want to walk with you again and allow the savior of the universe to save you. Allow him to save you. And so in a moment, we're going to have some uh, time of prayer and I'm going to invite, Dave, would you mind coming up and just playing on the guitar a little bit? Is that all right? Dave's going to play on the guitar a little bit for us, and we're going to have just a sweet a time of prayer, okay? And if you're interested, if you feel like I need to get right with Jesus, uh, there's absolutely no judgment here. It, come up and have some prayer. And if you say there's something in my body, I need, I need to receive a healing touch from God today, please come up and ask for prayer. But now is the time. And if you're at a place where you say, you know what, um, that, I agree, I'm fully on board with that, but that's, I don't feel the Spirit prompting me in that, would you please take, take a moment to just worship where you are, to pray where you are, read your scripture, or spend some time alone with Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you've got all week to think about work, to think about lunch, to think about everything that's coming next. Would you take 10 minutes right now and just spend some time in Jesus' presence with him this morning?